You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All right, well, today we're going to be in Genesis 6, discussing the time of Noah. Um, We were starting, um, this story is one that you're incredibly familiar with, I'm sure. Uh, I feel like every kid's ministry, right, uh, has something about Noah on it, right, whether it's coloring books or on the walls or on kids' Bibles, Um, Noah and, and cute little pictures of a pair of bunnies and hippos and elephants all getting on single fall line, getting on this uh, family fun sea adventure. And, and what, what they make it always look like it's some sort of floating uh, zoo exhibit. And I always think it's interesting um, that all of these renditions, the, the cartoon pictures of all, they're, they're missing a small detail to the story, like, like all the rest of the people dying in the world, right? The drowning, the death. It's always a bit odd to me that, that we, we pump this to, to kids as kind of like a fun kid story when it's not. In fact, I, I, you see all the time, like on like VBS, like during the summer times, like there's always like Noah VBS themes, which is a little weird, right? There's, there's some things I don't like. like Sod- I think we can all agree, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like no VBS should be themed Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Like that's when we go and be like, all right, yeah, don't send your kid to that one. Uh, but like, like the like the flood. I mean, it's it's a little bit weird too. Like a global flood that kills everything. Sounds like a good time, something to take your kids to. Like it's a little strange. Here's uh, what. Listen, this chapter has some incredibly strange things in the text. Some things I want us to enjoy. But um, if you see Noah's story as a cute floating zoo story, then then you are you're missing the narrative. It is far more than that. And I, I know, again, you've heard this countless times, and it'll be very easy for you to gloss over as we look at Noah's story, but I would ask that you would listen carefully, and my prayer is that you would hear the gospel in this story, and that you'd be encouraged by who your God is, and that it will remind you and motivate you to pursue Him. Now, there are four points uh, in today's sermon, and they're based off the major themes that we see in this chapter. It is man's sin, God's judgment, God's grace, and Noah's response. Let us pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that we, uh, as we open up your word and study it together, Lord, that you use it to uh, bring about correction in our lives, that it will bring us to repentance. Lord, that it will train us up in righteousness. Lord, this is your time that we set aside to worship you and to be in all of who you are. And Lord, I pray that's what happens. Lord, thank you this morning, and we thank you for bringing us together. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first point is man's wickedness. We see in verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Right, one of the first themes that we see in Genesis chapter 6, and then you're going to see over and over again in the chapter, is man's sin, his wickedness. That man is wicked in the days of no one. Verse 5, really, something sticks out to me. It says, it says uh, every intention of the thought of his heart, that's all of man, was only evil continually. That every intention, every motive, every thought, always evil. Now, at surface level, we see that God knows the heart. And that might be a terrifying reality to you, that that no one can hide their wickedness from 
God. God sees all. He knows all. He sees past any sort of illusion or deception that you may mask your actions with. And he can see you for who you really are, not who you portray yourself to be to everyone else. He knows you, fool. And there's not a corner of your heart that God does not know. God says in the days of Noah that every intention of man's heart was evil. Every intention. When we read that, we might look at that and go, that's, that's you know, God's using hyperbole. Maybe a little exaggeration on God's part. Every intention? Every motive? Seems like a lot. Maybe God's just trying to say, hey guys, these people were really bad. They were really evil. But it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that they're just really bad or really evil. It says that when God saw a man outside of Noah, there was only evil. There was only depravity. And that's a crazy statement when you think about it. I can't help but think, like, no one opened a door for someone to be nice. Right? No one, no one obeyed their parents or, like, rescued cat from trees. Like, no one did anything nice. Like, how is there a civilization if there's only evil? When we think of good and evil, often I think we become obsessed with behavior modification. Right? We tend to only look at the actions of man. But where God is first concerned is with intention. It's not that God doesn't care about actions. Of course God cares about actions. But before that, he cares about the motives of the heart. I think it's why there's such a high number of religious lost. People who come to church, who do religious things, and never search the intention of their heart. And I have no doubt in the time of Genesis that there are are people related to Noah who claimed the God of Noah, who did religious actions alongside of Noah. But God saw it all as wicked. All of their religious attempts he saw as wicked because they did not do it out of reverence, or out of worship, or out of love for the Lord. So all of their attempts, all of their intentions, purely self-serving. And in God's economy, that's wickedness. Depraved hearts produced Wicked intentions, and no matter how good actions may look to the culture or to others, how how good we mask it all, intention defines our actions. And the crazy part is God knows the intention of every action. You can fool everyone around you, except for the one that it matters to, except for your creator. Now, this passage reveals something else that's going on in the days of Noah, something a bit weird, a bit strange. Now, Will and myself have been touching on uh, a lot of the weird stuff, the, the weird and the wonderful. We've been doing like a little Facebook video series. Um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them, but we're going to deal more with this uh, this week. But I, I, it would be a disservice if I just didn't touch on it. Verses 1 and 2 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now the question comes up is, who are the sons of God? Now there's two options. Uh, typically in history, there's two main options. The first idea is that the sons of God are simply fallen angels or demons. 
Uh, the reason why this is the case, is because, uh, it's thought to be, is because most places in Scripture, when the term sons of God are used, it's a reference of angels. And if that's the case, what we see here is that the sons of God, these demons, they're looking at human women, they're finding them hot and tempting, and taking them as wives, and then they produce these giant demon baby hybrids called the Nephilim. This is one option. Listen, this is verse 4 of uh, chapter 6. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them, and they were mighty men who were old, the men of renown. Now, listen, this is a really fun option, right? It's a really fun option to think, okay, this is a cool story. You got demons and half-human demon hybrids. Like, as someone who plays D&D, I am all about this. Like, this is interesting to me. But I don't think that's what we see here. The other option is simply that the sons of God are from the line of Seth. That is, that these uh, sons of God are those who were pursuing the Lord. These are, uh, let's say, like children of God. That they were the line of Seth, and they were pursuing the Lord until a point where they stopped. If you remember, there were two sons of Adam and Eve who had very different lineages and lives. The first one was Cain, who killed Abel, whose posterity would be murderers and people of cruelty. They were ungodly. And then there was Seth, as we heard last week by Will, those would be, uh, who teach their family to be godly people. In fact, Seth's line leads us to Noah. And so I think what we see here, given what the, uh, the author wrote about in the previous chapter, are these, a continuation of these two lineages. We have one who loved the Lord and the other one who didn't. And now we get to the time of Noah and those even in the line of Seth who knew better who'd been told the truth, who were, at one point, walking with the Lord, are now led astray. Like Israel would do years later, they would marry unbelievers. And the women they married, they were beautiful, but they worshiped false gods. And like believers marrying unbelievers, their false gods of their wives would become the beloved idols of the family. And so you have a group of people being led astray. Now, whether that's true or whether it's demon baby hybrids, either way, the point is, wickedness was everywhere. From the line of Cain to the line of Seth, which were people who knew better, they all fell away, and they looked just like the rest of the world. There was no distinction anymore between those who came from Cain and those who came from Seth. There was no distinction. All had fallen away. Verses 11 and 12 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God saw the wickedness, and because he is just, he must do something. And that's our second point, is God's judgment. Genesis 6, 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, sometimes people read this and they go, okay, this means that man is not to live over 120 years. But uh, that's, that's clearly not what this means, uh, simply because Noah lives 950. His son lives, one lives the 500 years, and the other one, I think it's like 350, 350 years. 
The 120 years is simply a countdown. It's a countdown until justice was going to be served, and no one knew the day or the hour, but it was clear that justice was coming. In fact, what I love is that not even Noah knows that there's 120 years. In verse 3, God's not even speaking to Noah. He tells Moses much later and reveals that this is what he had decided, that man's days had been numbered. Now, there would be a day where God's patience with their sin would dry up. And there's something here that's beautiful I don't want to jump over. Because I think it's when we talk about the judgment of God or God's justice, it sometimes is a bit awkward or strange to us. Right? We, and especially the culture that, that idolizes being loving, sometimes we demonize justice. But there's something beautiful here about this. The God that we worship, the one that loves you and I, he's not some silent, stoic being watching disinterested and the ongoings of your life. God is perfectly emotional. And we see here in this chapter that, that he is angry at sin, but he's not just angry at sin, he's also anguishing. He's in sorrow. He is, he's upset, he is sad that so many have fallen away, that all he has created is spoiled. There's a great sadness with God. It says in verse 6 and 7, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creepy things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. God reveals his heart to his creation. Now we, get, we tend to get caught up in this idea, how on earth did God regret how can God regret something? He's all-knowing. He's perfect. Listen, this regret is not about new data. God doesn't receive new information. God didn't make a mistake. There's not a change in his character. This is simply God showing you his sorrow. That the creator is grieved by your sin. He's feeling sorrow and sadness. He's not indifferent to it all. He's not the strict principal who, who is angry just because of disobedience. It hurts him to his core. As it says, it grieves him to his heart. He cares. I think just as Jesus before this crucifixion, if you remember, he says, if there is another way that this cup could pass from me, this cup of judgment of faith. If there's any other way, he prays this, knowing that there is, in fact, no other way. But God, both counts, opens up the curtain, reveals to us a Father who feels, a God who feels that there's a deep sorrow and a pain within. But God has a divine plan, and therefore these things must come to pass. And he shows great humility and patience as God's plan for you to save you involves him suffering emotionally and physically. Think of that. That your creator, and to save you, in order for this to come to pass, he must suffer. And we see this emotional suffering, this grieving, even in Genesis 6. Sometimes we read about his judgment and we think, man, God is just mean. But church, listen, he's not mean, he's holy. 
He's just. In fact, God is patient. Listen, this is what he, when he tells Noah what he's going to do in verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God gives his plan to Noah, but, but how long-suffering is God? He gives them 120 years to repent. 120 years! That's a lot of time to repent. Imagine, right? You're in Walmart. Here in parents yell at their kids. That's what people do at Walmart, right? We yell at our children. And you hear a parent say, Johnny, 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 stop, stop. Johnny, stop. Okay, Johnny, I'm going to count to 400. <laughs> you'd be like, you'd be like, what? you'd be a little too patient. What's wrong with you? 400? God says 120 years. And it's not because he's too patient. It's because when justice or chastisement comes, humanity is the first one to scream at God, unfair. Now, he doesn't have to be patient. His patience is an act of grace. But who can make a claim that our God acts rashly? Who can make a claim that our God doesn't give people a chance to repent? No one. No one. Genesis 6.17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So God's justice was coming. But everywhere we see God's justice on display, we also see his grace. Third point is God's grace. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word favor here simply means grace. Noah found grace from God. Chapter 6 describes Noah as being blameless in his day. He's called uh, righteous. Also, he, like Enoch and Adam before him, they they walked with God. It's not that, that Noah is perfect, right? We will see his sin in the upcoming weeks. Grace was given to Noah Because God loved him, and because God loved Noah, Noah loved God. And this should sound familiar because it is also your story. If God had not shown you grace, you would not love him. It is his grace that granted you faith to begin with. So Noah, as a forgiven saint, saved by grace through faith, he is where we see this beautiful act of God by telling Noah about his rescue plan for him and his family. Verse 14, it says, Make yourself an ark. Not the simplest of instructions, slightly less complicated than some Ikea furniture, but God speaks and he tells Noah what to build and how big to build it. He tells Noah what he must build to survive what is to come. But listen, please. Do not think for one minute that Noah had a role in his salvation. Do not read this and think that this is some sort of synergistic salvation where where God gave a DIY art project with some animals and it was up to Noah really to do the heavy lifting. That's not what we see. God doesn't need an ark to save Noah or his family. Just as God didn't need a special suit to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames. Neither does God need a boat to save Noah and his family from the waters. 
When God decided to save Noah, Noah was saved. You see, the ark was an act of grace to Noah, but it wasn't just an act of grace to Noah. It was an act of grace to the entire earth, to all of creation, as God is willing to take on animals, to, to have, to, to continue what he made in the beginning. But it's also a grace to all of those who inevitably would reject the Lord and his prophet Noah. You'll hear in the coming weeks how Noah was mocked, how they scoffed at him for building an ark. But God gave him these instructions. God had animals come to Noah, all as a testimony to the world, all as a sign to the lost to repent. Even, even Noah is called in 2 Peter a preacher of righteousness. As he's building, as he's preaching, all of it on display. They see things that you can't explain, but still they repent or they refuse to repent. The people in Noah's day were without excuse, just as those in your day are without excuse. God gives 120 years and he has Noah build an ark. An act of grace to Noah, but an act of grace to all those who witnessed it who saw the ark and rejected God. Just Scripture says the same thing, right? That the world looks at not the creation of an ark, but creation itself and rejects the Lord and worships the creation rather than the Creator. Each day of that 120 years, they built an ark. Each day, centered around God's rescue plan, each day for Noah and for all that looked on, it was a reminder of grace. Listen, I pray, and I'm serious, that God's grace never ceases to get old to you. And I just don't mean the grace given for salvation, though that is also true. The daily graces and the mercies that are lavished upon you, ones that you have completely forgotten about that we've become like spoiled children who just assume it. My prayer is that you see daily grace and it calls your eyes to the Lord and it calls you to center your day around the God who rescues you. A people who fail to recognize the grace of each day, whether it be blessings or laughter or even a cry, we become apathetic and stale in our worship. Reasons to worship the Lord are refreshed each morning. God continue to show grace to Noah and those people. And he does so by establishing a covenant. Verse 18 and 19 says, But I will establish my covenant with you. And a covenant is, is a fancy word for a divinely imposed promise. God is making the promise and imposing it and fulfilling it. He says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. God, the great covenant maker, promises to save them, to save his family, to protect them and keep them. And how does Noah respond to such grace. And this is our fourth point. Noah's obedience. 
Noah, Noah responds in obedience, right? We see in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah was quick to listen and follow the word of the Lord. He obeyed the one who rescued him. Day after day, month after month, year after year, Noah obeys. Was his obedience easy? Most certainly not. Were there days he doubted? I'm sure there were. Were there days he was frustrated as he shared the gospel and built and argued with his kids and his wife about how long this ark is taking? No doubt. No doubt. But Noah, who was probably called a radical, probably called extreme, cared less about the words of man and more about the words of his God. Let the ridicule come. Let the scoffing come. My God, you are my rescue. What other option does Noah have? Anyone under grace, what option do you have? Any day he gives you is a day that is his, that belongs to him. It should be offered up as a sacrifice to him. Now, Noah's obedience was not simply behavior modification. It was genuine worship. His obedience came from faith. It says so in Hebrews 11.7. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah loved the Lord and thus trusted God. His faith gave way to obedience, and Noah had to wrestle with the same thing that all saints have to wrestle with. God has put you on mission. And I have to trust the unseen. I have to humble myself and follow the Lord. I have to give up things if I'm going to be faithful. I would ask you to examine where you lack faithfulness, where you see sin flourish. And I think if you examine your heart where sin is, a lack of trust in God's word exists. Listen, you will experience something very similar to Noah, and I find this fascinating. Think about this. Noah had to trust. He had to be obedient, laboring in response to grace, day after day, laboring in response to grace. For 120 years, hearing the Lord tell him to trust me. But one day, he saw that trust pay off, right, as the waters arose. And he, and he, unlike anybody else, stood on a firm foundation. And he saw God's judgment and got to experience the sweetness of God's gracious covenant. And as the world washed away, Noah came through the waters of the flood into a new creation. Your promise is a very similar experience. That when God's judgment comes, that you will see the height of his grace. That when you see God's judgment, you will think, how beautiful is a grace is this? Because here's the reality. You and I, we might have words and descriptions, but we can't begin to comprehend the depth 
and the seriousness of God's justice, of his wrath. There's no way you can comprehend it. But you will see the great distinction. You will see the great difference. And it will, it will leave you in awe as the Lord lifts you and exalts you and shows you grace. And you see the depth of judgment. You will then, like Noah, who saw rain and, and had never seen rain and couldn't comprehend the idea of a flood, like he, we will be left in awe. Because currently, it is impossible for us to comprehend what is to come. Those under judgment, listen to me carefully, please. Those under judgment are no different than you and I. They're, not, they're no different. We're all sinners alike. With one exception. There's one exception that separates the believer from the unbeliever. And it's simple. It's that God has found favor with you. And that is all. God has found favor with you and chose to show you grace and open your eyes and bend your knee. So I'd ask, like Noah, to that you would respond in faithful obedience, that you would pursue holiness and follow his word and all that he commanded you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.